right. Well, um, as I start into this lecture, um, I can't remember if I mentioned this morning that I am um, working on a book on union with Christ. It'll be part of a series on soteriology from Baker Academic. I don't know what the release schedule is. Kyle Strobel and Kent Eilers are the named editors of the series. And there will be volumes on justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, and my volume is supposed to appear fairly early in the sequence and be, have kind of a framing effect. So just a little background there to let you know why I'm taking the broadest approach possible. It's because I don't have to say everything in the manuscript that will eventually result from, from this work. Um, but I do have to kind of frame everything that's coming for the later authors. Um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to share about that. Oh, one other thing that might just explain kind of a behind the scenes look on what's appearing where here. The series uh, that Kyle and Kent are editing has a sort of a recommended structure for each of the volume, which is pretty straightforward. It's like make sure you do some Bible stuff, make sure you address the tradition, make sure you handle uh, some other things. So I think you'll recognize that um, the first lecture I gave was engaging sort of the creedal status of the, the element of salvation that we're looking at. And this one is the, the first half of a treatment of union with Christ in scripture. So this is the broad, uh, this is the extremely broad or embraceive, as John Marie says, part of the scripture chapter. So. All right, so evangel and epistle on union with Christ. The most obvious way to begin studying the doctrine of union with Christ is to open your Bible to one or two key passages in which the Apostle Paul writes about it. Among the many options, the richest veins to start mining would be either the long arc of argument from Romans 5 and 6, which raises all the right questions in just the right order and even answers most of them. Another promising place for prospectors would be Romans 8, where you don't even have to dig. The nuggets of gold are just scattered across the face of the ground in plain sight. Finally, and most powerfully, Ephesians 2 catches believers up into the vivifying, raising up, and enthronement of the Son. That is a particularly vivid and far-reaching statement on union with Christ. It is, after all, a characteristically Pauline doctrine in numerous ways. Indeed, as I've been writing and teaching about union with Christ in recent months, I often catch myself wondering if all I'm really saying at great length is what Paul sums up so concisely in two little words, a preposition and a title, in Christ. I would be happy to admit that everything we have to say about union with Christ never gets beyond that phrase. But as Kevin Van Hooser reminds us, there is much room in the inn of in Christ. Yes, yeah, thank you. You groan, you groan, but that Van Hooserian pun on the nativity is significant, like most of Kevin's puns. It exploits the language of Paul to point our attention to the life of Jesus. Paul, of course, would not be upset to have his language requisitioned in this way, because the logical structure of union with Christ is to begin with Jesus Christ and then to make the move of inclusion or incorporation into him. In canonical shorthand, we can say, Gospels first, and then epistles. That sequence ought to make itself present somehow in the doctrine of union with Christ. We should find a way to put that sequence to work within the doctrine. So in this lecture, I want to investigate the doctrine of union with Christ by attending to the genres in which it is primarily and permanently expressed in Scripture itself. All Scripture is inspired. In fact, it is inspired on more levels and in more registers than we often note. 
Conservative evangelical bibliology is used to arguing for plenary verbal inspiration, with an emphasis usually falling on verbal. Not just the ideas, but the very words of this complex text are set in place by the divine author. By probing the genres of union with Christ, I want to see further into the plenary side of the equation and claim that not only the words, but also all sorts of linguistic presuppositions and penumbra gathered around those words are also breathed out by the Holy Spirit. The very grammatical categories, the patterns of meaning making, and even the genres. Not in general, but as they are employed in the delivery of this message. Van Hooser again. Genre is not simply a device for classifying forms of literature, but a cognitive tool for generating worldviews. In our first lecture, we looked at how the soteriology of union with Christ generated the creedal contours of early Christian confession. Generated, in fact, the creeds themselves. In this lecture, we want to examine how that same soteriology generated the genre of gospel and epistle in their Christian canonical particularity. So first, we'll look at the genre of the gospels and the theological significance of that genre for union with Christ. Second, we'll look briefly at the genre of apostolic epistles as a secondary literary type whose argumentative structure is best apprehended as offering a supportive account of the significance of the life manifested in the Gospels. And third, learning from these genres, God's own genres, we consider what the most appropriate format for contemporary accounts of union with Christ might be by surveying some striking examples. So first, the genre of the Gospel. Everyone knows what a gospel is, and that there are four real ones. A gospel is a biography of Jesus, of course. But there are good reasons why, even though this answer may help you pick out a gospel quickly across a crowded room, it is nevertheless not a satisfying answer, least of all in the crowded room of New Testament studies, where people have opinions about this kind of thing. One reason is that all the ways the gospels behave somewhat like a, biogra like a biography pale in comparison to all the ways the Gospels misbehave by that standard. There are problems here of proportion and selectivity if you come to these as biographies. Why would a Gospel like Mark, with only 16 chapters in which to get everything done, devote six of those chapters to the final week of the main character's life? This apparent imbalance is what led Martin Kaler to offer, when speaking of Mark, what we might call genre definition one for Gospel. Definition one? A gospel is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. That's Martin Kaler talking about Mark and trying to capture the proportion issue there. A passion narrative with an extended introduction. The balance and proportion that would make sense for narrating a 30-year life or even a three-year ministry are distorted in the genre of gospel by the subject matter itself. The sheer importance of what Jesus did in that final week and of what was done to him reshape biography from within and impress on it the form of a passion narrative. Mark is not alone in giving such attention to the final week. Luke gives six of his 22 chapters to the final week and arranges another eight chapters around the dramatic progression to Jerusalem, a road trip with a lot of teaching on it where those events will take place. And Matthew, even with his large blocks of teaching that add numerous chapters to his story of Jesus's ministry, still assigns eight chapters out of his 28 total to the Passion Week. With just a little exaggeration, we could say these are more nearly death stories than life stories. At least we could say these are life stories uniquely leading up to a death story. 
But consider definition two. A gospel is a post-resurrection document of a pre-resurrection encounter. This is a curious feature of the gospels. A gospel is the story of a resurrected person written after the resurrection by somebody who understands the meaning of the resurrection, but is largely occupied with giving a sense of what it was like to be with that person before the resurrection, initially with no real understanding of what was about to happen. A gospel is a post-Easter document of a pre-Easter life, but the post-Easter understanding is baked into the telling of the pre-Easter life. The gospels are written not as just raw footage captured by a bystander, but as proclamation, in order, as John explicitly says, that you may believe. And each gospel in its own way shares what it was like to make the transition from unbelief to belief. Mark, with his messianic secret, John, with his beautiful ironies, where Jesus seems to be talking at a level way above everybody's head, Luke Acts, with its Pentecostal transformation of the followers of Jesus, and Matthew, with its multi-layered discourses. Each of the Gospels leads the reader through pre-Easter perplexity to post-Easter perspicuity. Oh, yeah, I like that. Perspicuity, of course, is an unclear word for clear. <laughs> the qualifications for being a Gospel author include the ability to mingle obscurity with clarity in the telling of the story, producing a text that can draw its readers along on the journey of faith. From this angle, the implied reader of a Gospel is somebody who is being led by the master to understand the identity and significance of the master. Now taken together, our first definition of a gospel yields Christ crucified, and our second definition yields Christ risen. Affirming the centrality of both for a gospel to be what it is, we can take them up in a third proposed definition. Definition three, a gospel is a life of Christ written in his presence. We could expand this definition by saying, a life of the crucified and risen Christ, but we can take that as established in the first two offers. What we want to emphasize is the idea of it being written in his presence. Jesus, the subject of the Gospels, is truly alive and spiritually present to the writer of the Gospel. This reality exerts a peculiar pressure on the crafting of the Gospel genre itself. This is a more direct and personal way of describing what it means for a Gospel to be something written after the resurrection. It is not just the case that the author of a gospel is conscious that the Jesus whose life moved toward death by crucifixion has gone on to vanish from the grave and move on somehow, but who knows where. Instead, that rising from the grave has had an effect on the gospel author who writes a document fully charged with the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. But the author of a gospel does not write directly about his own current encounter with the risen Jesus, narrating, for example, how he has come to know Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the writer's own life and times as a believer, a kind of personal conversion story describing the spiritual life of the writer and how he wrote the book. None of that's there. Instead, what is key to the genre of gospel is that its author writes precisely a narrative about the events of the life of Jesus leading toward that Holy Week, a narrative paying close attention to that Holy Week and recording what Jesus did and said on the pre-Easter side of the timeline. What we need to call to mind here is what, the author of a is what the author of a gospel has nothing to say about, his own personal testimony of his Christian experience, a life story about himself and his encounter with the risen Christ. No such story is given. Instead, what is given is the story of Jesus, 
Gospels exist because the risen Christ oversees this kind of written remembering of his life. His life rose with him, in the words of a 19th century Anglican preacher, Henry Scott Holland. His life rose with him and came back in his rising. The Gospels arose in witness to that in the power of the Spirit. When Jesus rose from the dead, he not only came back to life, but also brought back with him the life that he had already lived. In addition to being now physically raised, he was also, we might say, biographically raised. His biography came to life with him and manifested its identity as the human life of a divine person. That biography is where we look to know him as he is even now. The medium of a personal encounter with Jesus here and now is the recounting of what he did and said then and there. The writing of a gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're used to confessing as part of our doctrine of scripture, this inspiration. But the writing of a gospel is also guided and shaped by the presence of the living one whose story is told in it. The living presence makes a crucial difference in what is selected and how it's narrated. Because the words of a gospel are the self-presentation of the risen Christ. John Henry Newman described the spiritual dynamic underlying all Christian theological understanding in these words. Though the Christian mind reasons out a series of dogmatic statements, one from another, this it has ever done and always must do, not from those statements taken in themselves as logical propositions, but as illustrated and, as I may say, inhabited by that sacred impression which is prior to them, which acts as a regulating principle ever present upon the reasoning, and without which no one has any warrant to reason about these things at all. This is singularly the case in the production of the texts in the genre of canonical gospel. Its writers are inhabited by that sacred impression in person. In the classroom, I often illustrate this element of the gospels by contrast with other life stories, narratives of lives admirable and significant in themselves, and lives that left a written record. Consider, for example, the life of Frederick Douglass, 1818 to 1895, or rather, the lives of Frederick Douglass. He was born into slavery, became educated and liberated, and worked for the education and liberation of his people. He wrote his own life story three times. First, in the classic narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, 1845. And if you're only going to read one Douglass autobiography, read that one. It's the classic in which, at a fairly young age, and before it's safe for him to tell the complete story of how he escaped slavery, he finds his voice and performs as a full literate human on the public stage, contradicting people who say African-American slaves can't do that. He just answered by doing it. So it's the 1885, uh, 1845 narrative um, of the life of Frederick Douglass. But then at greater length, he wrote My Bondage and My Freedom, 1855, where he had another 10 years of life and more details to add. And finally, at much greater length and with several more decades of experience to narrate, he wrote 1893's Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. Now, there are some genre similarities here between the lives of Douglass and the canonical gospels. Um, three books go back over the same material, creating various kinds of synoptic problems in reading Douglass, as he tells some of the same stories from different angles and with different details. But the main formal genre similarity to a gospel is the time sequence. In the case of Douglas, a person writing from the far safe side of freedom and literacy tells precisely the story of what it was like to be enslaved and illiterate 
and how things went when he was in that state. Event after event in the life of the young Douglas are faithfully and accurately narrated, but always suffused with the adult literary intelligence of an emancipated, empowered, and well-traveled author. These similarities to the gospel genre are helpful for drawing out the dynamics of gospel narration. But of course, the differences are equally striking and more important. Frederick Douglass wrote autobiographically, whereas gospel writers write about somebody else. And Douglass wrote, we might say, in his own presence, whereas gospel writers wrote in the presence of another. But the real difference, and here I would state the infinite qualitative distinction between the life of Frederick Douglass and the life of Jesus Christ, comes into play when we consider not the gospel writer, but the gospel reader. Let us bring this out by proposing another definition of gospel. Definition four, a gospel is a life of Christ written in his presence to be read in his presence. When we read the life or the lives of Frederick Douglass, we read them as artifacts of an absent author. Frederick Douglass lived, wrote his own life, did his works, and died. He recedes now into our national past and our cultural memory. And if we say we know him personally, we are describing only the literary reenactment of a historical process now slipping further into the past. Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away, says Isaac Watts. If we say Frederick Douglass lives on, we definitely mean it in a metaphorical sense, referring to the impact his life has made on our national history or the personal impact he has made on us as readers. If we were to try to take too seriously the claim that Douglass lives, we would only make his absence more conspicuous. If we, for instance, started a society that met once a week for the public reading of his life story and gathered to sing songs about him and called ourselves after his name, we would only be making it glaringly obvious that no merely human life can support the kind of religious devotion underwritten by the Gospels. It would become increasingly sad the more we tried to conjure up an ongoing presence that was more than literary or, more or, or mere historical remembrance, the more we would underline the fact that Douglas is no longer with us. I often want to point this out when someone says something like, Elvis lives. I want to do like a Acts, kind of, Acts chapter 2 kind of thing and say like, actually we know where he's buried and we could go get him. But, but that's, that's rude. Okay. By contrast, when reading a gospel, he whose biography is now before us is himself with us. I'm quoting Hugh Martin there. This principle is explained and applied by Scottish theologian Hugh Martin, who lived from 1822 to 1885, in his 1860 book, Christ's Presence in the Gospel Narratives, uh, republished recently as The Abiding Presence. So the, the classic book is Christ's Presence in the Gospel Narrative. Uh, they just changed the title, The Abiding Presence. The key idea is that we have two factors to reckon with when we read the life of Christ in Scripture. First, the biography set down in print, the life before us, and second, the living presence of the risen Christ with us. Martin sets out to, quote, ponder the marvelous advantage of possessing this presence and biography unitedly. Uh, at no point does Hugh Martin say, which would you rather have, the biography or the presence of Jesus? He never poses that. He wants to emphasize that you have both and why that's great. He shows the value of their unity by imagining them separately. What if we only had one or the other? If all we had was a written biography of Jesus, he says, quote, we would use it as a way of recalling his amazing life that took place long ago, and that life would get further away from us with every passing year. Oh, would that I had been there, we might say. 
One fears that this is what many believers are in danger of settling for, a life of Jesus that is not much more than a life of Lincoln or of Napoleon, or I might add, of Douglas. If all we had was the presence of the risen Christ, but no written biography, what would we have? A powerful spiritual reality, Christ himself. But what would our thoughts and conceptions about that presence be? What would guide them or shape them? All is vague and hazy, very solemnizing, Hugh Martin says, very encouraging and consoling, but also very indefinite and somewhat ghostly. Before long, instead of concrete knowledge of the life of Jesus Christ, our minds and affections would fill up with emotions, imaginations, and conceptions of our own provision, mere pietistic, sentimental conceptions of his presence, and, quote, perhaps fanatical emotions begotten of the belief that he is present with me. One fears that this is what many believers are in danger of settling for as well, an unformed and undisciplined sense of Christ's presence, always shading off into a personal Jesus shaped to fit our own heads or hearts. Martin says, with his sure and spiritual presence then, let it be my privilege to possess his clear and definite biography. So sure and spiritual presence, clear and definite biography. Give me the presence of the Lord, not vague and distinct and ghostly, silent, oppressive, and almost appalling, but as uttering the very sayings and achieving the very works of grace and love that the biography details. Let me hear this Savior present with me saying, as in this history, to Peter and James and John, what I say to you, I say to all, so that I'm entitled to hear it, said to me. Let the ever-present Christ make his presence with me definite, intelligible, and most distinct by proffering to me, as still full of spirit and life and grace and glory, the very words he uttered and the works he did in the days of his flesh. Let him enshrine his promised presence within the very lineaments and limits of the biography. Hugh Martin. To have both the presence of the ascended Christ and the inspired written account of his earthly life is to have something true and to know Christ. The presence gives reality, present reality and life to the biography. The biography supplies to the otherwise indefinite presence distinct manifestation, action, and utterance. More concisely, Martin says, the biography is enlivened by the presence. The presence is defined by the biography. And Martin concludes his opening chapter with the wish, let the biography and the presence be conjoined and coalesce. Both senses, uh, the biography and the presence, are contained, if you can hear them, in the little phrase, the life of Jesus. You see how it can mean both. We might call a book about anybody their life, and in another sense, we might equally call a living presence a life. But readers who encounter the reality of Christ himself in the act of reading the Gospels have both factors at work. The life and the life, the biography and the presence. Now, it's obvious enough that faith in Christ gave rise to written accounts of his life and teachings. But these written accounts are unlike conventional lives in ways that are theologically significant. They are meant to be read in the presence of their subject in such a way that historical account and actual spiritual presence converge on the reader, both the implied reader uh, evoked by the text and the actual reader taking up and reading. Gospels, in other words, are not inert. They do not sit still and await application. They are instead the literary form of the self-presentation of the risen Christ applying himself to the reader. They are in themselves already documents of union with Christ, and the implied reader is a disciple. So second point, and more briefly, apostolic epistles as interpretive guides. 
To complete the movement of gospel first, then epistle, we turn to the genre of New Testament writing that is apostolic letters. These, especially the ones by Paul, are where the theology of union with Christ is articulated in its most doctrinal form. There's very often a narrative substructure to the argument of an epistle, but it's often uh, with an emphasis on the prefix sub. It's a substructure, um, but the structure of the narrative is not evident on the surface. But the fact that the Jesus story is just below the surface and is guiding the theological arguments sometimes breaks the surface and becomes evident. One especially prominent place is Ephesians 1 and 2, where Paul first describes what God did in the life of Jesus Christ and then describes how it applies to believers. That is, when Paul wants to describe salvation, he tells what happened to Jesus and then annexes believers to that. Having been dead in sins, we were raised with Christ and are alive together in Christ. In Ephesians, Paul even found the shortest possible way of making this point by taking the main verbs of the story of Jesus and putting a with prefix on them. We are co-raised, co-seated in Christ in a place above all earthly powers. In Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, Paul says that God displayed his great power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Then in Ephesians 2, verses 5 to 6, Paul takes those same actions, raising, seating, and adds the co-prefix to them. Actually, in Greek, it's the sun prefix. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That is, he co-enlivened us, sun esopiesen, with Christ, and raised us up with him, that is, co-raised us, sun agerin, and seated us with him, that is, co-seated us, sun ekathesen, in the heavenly places. Elsewhere, using the same constructions, Paul says he is co-crucified with Christ and that we are co-inheritors with Christ. Salvation is what God did in Christ and believers co-that. That's as short as you can make it. The verbs of Jesus and the prefix that annexes your fate to his. The good news. By God's doing, we are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord because that's where the salvation is. Now, in this way, the genre of apostolic epistles as a secondary literary type, which presuppose the realities set forth in the Gospels, um, bring us a supportive account of the significance of the life manifested there. There are more than these two genres in the New Testament, of course. There is New Testament apocalyptic and wisdom writing, and even within the, I, I take James to be a kind of wisdom writing, um, and even within the genres of gospel and epistle, there are complex literary phenomena happening that need to be recognized using other literary descriptions. So I'm generalizing, but the spirit-driven genres of gospel and epistle are the ones that most clearly manifest the structure of union with Christ, not only in their explicit content, but in their very literary form, a form driven by the presence of Christ and his will to union. Now third, theological genres. Attention to the dynamics of this canonical form brings us to a place where we can consider the form of theological writing today um, available to us. Having learned from God's own genres, let us consider what the most appropriate format for contemporary accounts of union with Christ might be, and whether we already have them or need to write them from scratch. I want to point out a number of historical examples of theological writing that follows the contours we have just traced of giving attention first to the life of Jesus and then to its application to us or our inclusion within it. 
We'll move quickly through some examples of theologians writing from the history of the church with the goal of priming the pump of possible future writing on the doctrine of salvation. A guiding question for us will be, what method would enable us to write evangelical soteriology of a kind that made this same gesture of fixing our attention on Jesus Christ primarily while also effectively delivering the results needed for explicit soteriological teaching and covering the ground of describing the experience of salvation. Let me say one of my standards there is also to make sure it's densely theological enough because um, while narrative theology is completely a thing and I have defended it here um, subliminally, uh, it always has trouble rising to the level of clear and discrete theological claim. So that's what we're pushing in writing theology in response to what's there in genre and epistle, in uh, gospel and epistle. So first and most importantly, I want to draw your attention to a tradition of writing meditatively on the individual events of the life of Jesus. In its high medieval development, it's the tradition known as the mysteries of the life of Christ. The mysteries tradition has a rich heritage and devotional writing about Jesus, but reaches a kind of definitive theological statement in the third part of Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia. Within Summa Theologia part three, um, all of questions 27 to 45 are taken up with individual events from Jesus's life. And within the Summa, a question is a, a big thing with lots of articles inside of it. So that's the larger structure. And 27 to 45 are events from the life of Jesus. Examined from a variety of angles for their theological, spiritual, and moral pertinence. The series of questions here stands out of the Summa for being marked by close exegesis. Many parts of the Summa are not marked by close exegesis. These, though, are, that is, they follow the text of scripture much more directly and literally. Thomas takes up an event, asks why it happened the way it did, what it signifies, and how it is related to the triune God's overall saving work through the instrument of Christ's human life. There is a richness of detail in these sections that is driven by the Augustinian conviction that he brings up in Augustine's commentary on John 6. He says, since Christ is himself the word of God, even the act of the word is a word to us. So coming to these events from the life of Christ and saying, well, they are events in the life of the word. Um, so even these acts are words to us. Each action of Christ, that is, is eloquent in itself. His actions carry meaning and can be exegeted as communications. Thomas approaches these mysteries as the place where the very content of our knowledge of Christ is to be contemplated. In his remarks on Ephesians 3, Aquinas asks how we can know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. His answer there points to this study of events of the gospel. Aquinas says, to know Christ's love is to know all the mysteries of Christ's incarnation and our redemption. These have poured out from the immense charity of God, a charity exceeding every created intelligence and the combined knowledge of all of them, because it cannot be grasped in thought. Thomas comes to these mysteries then with high expectations that each of them is a word of infinite depth, and he brings to bear on their interpretation all of his theological acumen. In particular, this entire treatise on the events of the incarnate mystery is guided by the notion of fittingness. That is, rather than arguing about what necessarily must be the case in salvation, Thomas asks of each event why it is fitting or appropriate that this thing should have been done in this way. The logic of fittingness is extremely flexible because it's designed not so much to produce proofs or to establish doctrines as to give further insight into the why and the how of things already demonstrated. 
Given that God could have done things in various ways, what is particularly made known in God's free choice to do this thing this way? Thomas pursues these questions in ways that sometimes seem almost childish. Why did Jesus live to early middle age rather than complete his work earlier? Why didn't he live to an older age? And so on. Um, the questions sometimes seem less than urgent, but because Thomas is seeking the wisdom of appropriateness, they always yield deeper insight into the unique character of the one mystery of the incarnate life through the prism of one particular event. The mysteries tradition is a great one, which Roman Catholic theology has tried to revive in the 20th century with mixed results. Um, though I will say Ratzinger's multi-volume life of uh, Jesus of Nazareth um, has some rich moments, and earlier Romano Gardini's book, The Lord, similarly has a life of Christ structure with a lot of theology. Um, more recently, Thomas Wynandy is doing a multi-volume series called, I think, Jesus Becoming Jesus, uh, which goes through the events of his life. And um, also a little shout out to the Dominican Dominic Lege, Trin the Trinitarian Christology of Thomas Aquinas actually has a little treatise on the mysteries of the life of Christ in the middle of it. Okay, but to turn to Protestants. Isaac Ambrose's book, Looking Unto Jesus. The Puritan Isaac Ambrose, who died in 1664, wrote a large book called Looking Unto Jesus. If I call it a devotional book, you'll simply need to upgrade your notion of what a devotional book can be or the condition to which all devotional books should aspire. Ambrose wrote it with the design of placing the mind of his readers in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's more than 700 pages long and demands close attention. Uh, it, it, is, it is fine print, like this is, you know, brew some coffee, tighten your belt, and read some Puritans. It's, there's a lot there. But it trains the mind in attending to Jesus like no other book I've ever encountered. I mean, besides like John's Gospel, right? So. One of the central distinctions Isaac Ambrose makes is between simply knowing something on the one hand and considering it on the other. Both are modes of looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus is the large term. But not considering a truth about Jesus is a step, uh, but considering a truth about Jesus is a step further than simply knowing it. In the section on Christ's resurrection, Ambrose explains the difference. It is not enough to know a saving, a saving necessary truth, but it is required further that we digest truths and that we draw forth their strength for the nourishment and refreshing of our poor souls. As a man may in half an hour chew and take into his stomach the meat which he must have seven or eight hours at least to digest, so a man may take into his understanding more truths in an hour than he is able to digest well in many hours. What good these men are like to get by sermons or providences who are unaccustomed to this work of meditation, I cannot imagine. It is observed by some that this is the reason why so much pre preaching is lost among us. Why professors that run from sermon to sermon, it doesn't mean like professors, but those who profess the faith, yeah. Run from sermon to sermon, are, <laughs> though professors should also listen to this caution. Uh, actually, as long as I'm digressing, this... <laughs> This is really the occupational hazard of working in theology at any level. Um, if you're reading with understanding, you will within an afternoon take in more truth than you can live out in the course of a month. So you're permanently top heavy in that way, just like walking around with a bunch of notions you don't quite deserve, yeah? And there's no way to catch up. Like if you're reading theology a lot, you are just always gonna have more in your head. You just need to remember, like keep an index card in your pocket. Like I don't actually have experiential grasp of all that I know to be true. Right? So when people ask you for advice, tell them what you know, but maybe give the caveat, like, by the way, I just read that. <laughs> right? So like, it's true, I vouch for it, but 
I'm not drawing on meditation or lived experience. So, so therefore, God commanded Joshua not only to read the law, but to consider it and dwell upon it. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. This is the duty I am pressing to. If you know these things, consider, ruminate, meditate, ponder on them again and again. And because this work requires enlargedness of heart and spirit, therefore take it into parts and consider each of them apart by itself. And from here, under the heading, Looking Unto Jesus, Isaac Ambrose gives you a little taxonomy of nine different ways of looking to Jesus. It's a, just parsing those is a study in itself. It's um, know Jesus, consider him, believe him, trust him, hope in him, etc. It's a, it's a wonderful study. This resurrection portion of the 700-page book is about 80 pages long, just on the resurrection. And Ambrose takes his sweet time examining how Christ was carrying on the great work of man's salvation in his rising from the dead. Now, the backbone of Ambrose's book is the Gospels, since he's tracking the events of the life of Jesus. But his exposition draws on the depths of Old Testament theology on the one hand, and the penetrating insight of New Testament epistles on the other hand. He's quoting from all over scriptures as he's looking at the Gospels and describing the events. And it's also informed by classic Christian doctrine to a really remarkable degree, not just in a broadly orthodox kind of way, but in considerable detail. This is what make Isaac's, makes Isaac Ambrose's model so attractive and promising for theological writing. It really gets theological. Oh, we shouldn't all write 700-page tomes, but in other ways, this is a model. Here are two brief examples on two successive pages of the book, um, also on the resurrection section. I tend to forget about Isaac Ambrose, and I'm never sure I've finished the book, and then every Easter I think, like, I should read some Isaac Ambrose. So I think I've reread the resurrection section several times. Um, one, Christ's resurrection was not just his, but was ours as well. There are several ways Ambrose could have made this point, but when he reached into the toolkit to find the right way to do it, he came out with this conceptual tool. Christ rose again, Ambrose says, as a common person. He stood in our stead, and therefore when he rose from death, we and all the church of Christ rose together with him and in him. We have formerly observed that Christ took upon him the person of no man, he took only the nature of man into the union of the second person of the Trinity, that so he might die and rise again, not as a particular, but as a common person, that he might be as a representative in our room instead. End quote. What Ambrose is invoking here is not just the Christology of the Council of Chalcedon 451, but later elaborations of it from the next council, uh, Second Council of Constantinople 553, and from Leontius of Byzantium's formula about the human nature of Jesus being hypostatic, personalized in its union with the word. Not personal in itself, but only personal as the human nature of this person. Ambrose rightly sees that the soteriological and devotional points he wants to make are supported by the conceptually elaborate post-Chalcedonian conciliar Christology. How's that for a devotional book? Number two, Christ rose by his own power, Ambrose points out. After proving this point from scripture, John 2, 19, John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down and I take it up. Ambrose says, but against this, it may be objected, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, Acts 5:30, Acts 2, 24. In many places, the resurrection of Christ is ascribed to the father. How then is he said to raise up himself by his own power? Again, Ambrose reaches into his toolkit and finds just the tool for the job, the inseparable operations of the Trinity at extra. He says, Christ's resurrection is the indivisible work of the blessed Trinity. It is a work common to all three persons, 
there is but one power of the Father and of the Son, so that of both it is truly verified the Father raised him and the Son raised himself. Again, we see Ambrose making a spiritual and devotional point. The Son is Lord of his own resurrection. And again, we see him supporting the point by taking immediate recourse to a pretty austere doctrine of God. And it works. The Lordship of Christ simply must be grounded in the Lordship of the one God, rather than worried over as if contrastively or competitively. What strikes us in both of these cases is that Isaac Ambrose does not huff and puff and roll up his sleeves to put these doctrines into place. He just calmly and serenely picks them up to explain his devotional point during his Bible study, presupposing that his Christian readers will be receptive to them or even familiar with them. He says, we have formally observed before he drops some of that post-Chalcedonian Christology on you. He takes up these doctrines with the deftness of long practice and applies them almost effortlessly to understanding how the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be an effective work for us and a manifestation of Christ's own lordship. I should say a soon forthcoming book that does the same thing is um, uh, Biblical Reasoning by Bobby Jameson and Tyler Whitman. So that should be out in a few months and it's great. These ancient doctrines were once part of the normal equipment for pastoring and spiritual writing in the Protestant tradition. A devotional writer made use of them in explaining and applying the story of Jesus. We should do whatever we can to get ourselves and our churches back into that position. Imagine, even for devotional books. They shouldn't all be like that. Like, streams in the desert is also good, but... Okay. C. So we've done, um, we've done the two biggies right now. We've done Aquinas on the mysteries of the life of Christ and that tradition. We've done Isaac Ambrose on looking unto Jesus, which is fairly singular, but um, makes contact with a broader Protestant tradition of devotional writing on the life of Jesus and the Gospels. C, though, there are some Protestant treatises similar to Ambrose's looking unto Jesus. One excellent example is Thomas Goodwin's Christ Set Forth in His Death and Resurrection, one of those long Goodwin titles where you can see everything that's in it, it's going to be about the death and the resurrection, so those mysteries. It's only 100 pages, 100 pages long, and it's focused on these final Paschal events, but it's characteristically profound, vintage Goodwin. Jeremy Taylor's book, The Great Exemplar, has been hailed as one of the first lives of Christ, and it gives careful attention to the conduct of Christ as the foundation of our imitation of him as disciples in the spirit. Anglican Bishop Joseph Hall wrote a series of contemplations, which cover a lot of material, but a long section of his contemplations track the text of the Gospels and examine the individual events of the life of Jesus theologically. We should also mention Edmund Polehill's book, Speculum Theologia in Christo, Latin title but English book, um, and it means uh, mirror of theology in Christ. It treats Christ as a mirror in which we can see all the doctrines about God or a book in which we can read the divine attributes written humanly. Uh, great, great short book. Uh, you can get it in the works of um, Edmund Polhill. Uh, Baxter's Divine Life also uses the divine attributes as the subject matter of looking into the life of Jesus, though in both of these two last cases, uh, Polhill and Baxter, the gospel outline is less easy to discern. It's more of a tour driven by divine attributes taking up an attribute and then looking to Jesus to see that attribute illustrated. So a little looser fit with the, the gospel structure. Um, more recently, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, was a pretty famous Bible teacher back around the turn of the 20th century, had a bestseller uh, with his book, The Crises of the Christ, in which he talked about um, Christ's development and entry into his office of savior and took in a very episodic way, what do we learn from this event? What do we learn from this event?
One unique set worth mentioning is Rudolf Stier's Words of Jesus. This is Rudolf Stier, Die Reden Jesu. Um, they are written in German, but immediately translated into English. In these volumes, Rudolf Stier, who lived from 1800 to 1862, set himself the task of commenting on every recorded word of Jesus, treating them from the point of view that these were God's direct self-revelation in human words spoken by the incarnate son. Um, these were God's direct self-revelation in books that were so divinely inspired that they repaid close attention to every word. Uh, Stier is a very detailed jot and tittle kind of expositor, and he's after the words of Jesus, but he does enough of the narrative context to frame them and set, set up their meaning. Um, I've been reading along with them as my church preaches through Luke, and it's sometimes he gets to Luke late in the series, so it's kind of hard to trace what he does because he doesn't repeat everything, but it's always worth finding your way. It's hard to find your way because there are nine volumes of them. They're written in German, but were immediately translated into English by Methodist genius William Burt Pope. Stier has to organize his work on a kind of harmony of the Gospels for the most part, but he's radically attentive to how Jesus's words fit into the literary context of each Gospel. Even when he compares pericopes, sorry, I just noticed Microsoft Word knew that I meant periscopes. So... <clears throat> even when he compares pericopes and draws out insights about how sayings are deployed in different gospels. Nevertheless, there's a, there's a light harmonizing effect um, on it. This uh, has been, uh, so anyway, I do recommend Steer to you. It's all freely available on Google Books or archive.org, and it really is um, an amazing devotion to every single word that Jesus said. I mean, Steer just thought, like, what else are you going to do with your life? You're a Bible scholar. Why don't you write an extended commentary on every word from Christ? Um, it sold well enough that he tried to do a sequel, but couldn't think of anything else Jesus said. So he did words of the risen Lord, because he stopped um, before the resurrected Christ's sayings were you know, recorded in the Gospels. And then he did the words of the angels, and then he started on a project called Words of the Apostles, but it was mainly just the speeches in Acts, and he kind of like died before he finished. So. Okay, um, this has been a rather scattershot survey of some experiments in genre, experiments driven by the structure of the doctrine of union with Christ. What we want is a doctrine of union with Christ that is more resolutely about Christ, or that captures and enshrines the reality that salvation requires first attention to Jesus Christ and then to the way the reality of Jesus impacts or impinges on the life of the Christian. In one sense, I'm sort of scanning for possibilities for the writing of a new uh, way of presenting union with Christ. In another sense, I'm saying this is not just about ideas for the next book project. I'm saying this way of doing it already exists out there, but we might not recognize it as properly doctrinal, or we might have just turned aside from reading it. So um, I'm suggesting things to examine to see that this way of doing union with Christ is already out there in theological literature. Our powers of attention need to be focused on the truth in Jesus um, more than they need to be focused on an experiential point on the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. The question we should pose next is, is the ordo salutis a list of the components of salvation a good genre for union with Christ? My answer is yes, it can be, but I'll have to go into detail about that in the next lecture. Thank you. <laughs>